Welcome to Someday is Now, a podcast for Asian American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week, we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian American history. My guests and I will explore our various Asian American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a space and place to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. And welcome to this week's episode of Someday is Now. I'm so glad that you are here, and I'm excited to share with you an episode with my dear friend, Ruth Jo Simons. But before I introduce her to you, I wanted to share um, our section on Did You Know?, which is part of Asian American history. Today's little tidbit of knowledge is U.S. history that did you know that the first recorded Chinese woman in the United States was in 1834 with 19-year-old Afong Moi who came to New York City. She was the first recorded Chinese woman in the United States. I'm so excited to introduce to you my friend Ruth Jo Simons. She is a best-selling author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, She shares her journey of God's grace intersecting daily life with word and paintbrush through an online shop at gracelace.com. We will link up all of her uh, social media as well as her websites uh, in the show notes. Her Instagram community is more than 100,000 strong, and Ruth and her husband, Troy, are the parents to six boys. Ruth is the author of Beholding and Becoming, The Art of Everyday Worship, and Grace Laced, which won a 2018 Christian Book Award. I am so excited to share with you our conversation. Ruth was so generous and vulnerable. I think that you will uh, relate to so much of what she shares, and I hope that you will glean many leadership lessons from her as well. So without further ado... Let me introduce you to our conversation. Welcome to the very first interview with my very first guest, my dear friend, Ruth. Um, Ruth, would you introduce a little bit of who you are and some of your story and just even how we met? Sure. I'm Ruth Jo Simons. I am an author, artist, um, and the founder of gracelace.com, a website I started 12 years ago as a blog where I was just working out um, how to see beauty and truth in my everyday life. And now it's become a lifestyle brand where I get to share my artwork around the world and um, through the books that I write. My first one was Grace Laced, uh, Discovering Timeless Truths Through Seasons of the Heart. And um, I'm excited about a new book coming out this fall. Oh, we'll have to talk about that. Now, yes. I caught you just as you were saying, uh, introducing yourself. You went, I am Ruth. So, 
Joe Simons, yes. Joe Simons. So I think even that's Chinese for Zhou, right? That's yes. A yep. Chinese name, right? So I think um, how have people like mispronounced your name and 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 how is it that you are like kind of redeeming that part of your... I, I love being able to talk about this here because you get it. Um, you know, I always tell people you should, you don't need to know that it would be pronounced Zhou because it's spelled C-H-O-U and on the mainland of China, it's Z-H-O-U and different dialects pronounce it a little bit differently. But I grew up speaking Mandarin and so my Chinese name is Zhou Yu Rou. Yu is the word for rain and Rou is um, like Wen Rou, like gentle and um, soft. And um, I grew up knowing how my Chinese name is pronounced. And so there's just no way to, for me to say Ruth Chow Simons, because it doesn't, it didn't even translate in my mind, just like um, I wouldn't pronounce Juan, Juan, knowing that that's the Spanish way of pr- you know, that's the way to pronounce one. And so I wouldn't say it the way it's spelled. And so, um, you know, it's just one of those things where I knew that it was going to be difficult to have that be my name in publishing because it's going to be mispronounced over and over. People have called me um, Grace Simmons or <laughs> Ruth Cho Simmons or so many versions of my name. But I, I feel like one of the things that I get to do um, being just unique with a different name is just to walk, go about my life saying, you know what, I don't expect you to know everything, but I expect that you might just even know a little bit of my story and I'm just going to work on sharing it as we go. So, so there you go. It's Ruth Joe Simons and that's the way I prefer, prefer to pronounce it. I love that. And I think that it is such a beautiful um, piece of redeeming, you know, our names. Cause I, you know, my, my maiden name is Yang, Y-A-N-G, but it's young. It's young, pronounced yeah. young. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that this is all a part of, you know, having a space for Asian American women Mm -hmm. to celebrate and to even explore what that means to Mm -hmm. live biculturally. So tell me some of your ethnic... Well, I was just going to say, I I didn't answer the part of your question where you said, how did we meet? And when you and I met at IF Gathering, it was one of the sweetest things because not only do we um, are, are we not immediately fast friends and bosom buddies, but also, um, it was so good to see an, an Asian American peer and leader in the space that I work. And um, it was just such a joy and a treat to become friends with you. Oh, I have felt the same way. And so I look forward to all of our ventures in yeah. the coming years. So that will be fun. So tell, I would love to hear some of your your ethnic journey, like just um, just kind of the, the sometimes offensive question, where are you from? Like, where are you? Right, from? right. Like, but yeah. no, really, like, tell us your ethnic journey. Yeah, I was born in Taiwan, in Taipei, and my parents um, immigrated when I was three, so almost four years old. I had grandparents who were living in the D.C. area, so we immigrated here expecting for my parents to go to school and go to grad school and do things like that. Long story short, it didn't quite work out that way, and so my parents ended up... um, moving down to New Mexico, where my mom's side of the family, there was a one brother that lived there. And so we kind of were trying to find our place in the United States. And, you know, I'm obviously giving the brief version, but um, my early memories is just that I was completely fluent in Mandarin, but I was suddenly in kindergarten, unable, I, I, I actually recall not knowing the language and literally sitting there going, I don't know how to interject and I don't know how to 
be a part and make friends. And um, so that's actually pretty vivid in my mind. Um, mm. I think as a result, I ended up doing kindergarten twice <laughs> or something like that, you know, but um, because I, I certainly had to pick up English once we, um, once we arrived, but um, I grew up mostly in New Mexico. And so it's funny because as a Chinese American who immigrated, um, you know, as a child, if you immigrate and go to San Francisco or LA or um, even other densely Asian populated areas, you would probably retain a lot of your language or culture. But we moved to New Mexico, where at the time, now there's a larger, much larger population of Asian Americans. But at the time, this is early 80s. I mean, I really remember thinking we were one of 10 families maybe at the time that we would just see pop around town and most of those belonged to like Chinese restaurants or, you know, and, and I didn't know anybody and um, nobody looked like me and there wasn't a lot of, there weren't opportunities to constantly speak the language, but by God's grace, uh, my, my family, my parents kept speaking Chinese at home. And so I'm just really grateful that we got to speak Mandarin at home and I was able to retain the language. I still don't um, read and write it well. I do, um, I know the phonetics, the, the ping, um, not the pinging, the um, Yes, the Bopomofo. I know those. Um, and I could probably send an SOS message out if I was <laughs> on an island and I needed to send a message in a bottle. I could spell it out in. Um, in the phonetics. And so, yes, survival skills are there, but I do still speak Mandarin um, for, I think, for a long time. It was still the language I um, mentally thought in or dreamed Mm in. It Mm -hmm. wasn't until like I was in late high school or college that it shifted and my internal thoughts went English. And so, um, so I grew up primarily in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And um, in my latter years of high school, my dad went to school in the Bay Area. And so we actually moved out there. I um, graduated high school north of San Francisco in Mill Valley. And so suddenly, as like a 16 year old for the first time, I was like, holy smokes, there are all these Asians who live here. They've all been doing life together while I was like by myself in the desert. No. And totally, we, did, totally. we, did, we did have some Asian American <laughs> friends. There, I did do some Chinese school. Anytime you have Asians in one community, they'll start up a Chinese school. So I did do, um, I'm, I'm exaggerating. It wasn't that bad. We obviously had some um, Chinese friends that we definitely did dinner with and spent holidays with. But when we went to San Francisco in the Bay Area, I was blown away. I mean, I literally did not know what to do with myself because um, we would go to church on Sundays or spend time with folks. And every there were entire districts, as you know, if you're in San Francisco, there are entire districts where um, they're completely populated with only Asians. And so um, to walk down the street and have an Asian bakery to get dumplings whenever you want and... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to have hair products that were designed for Asians. Like, what's going on? Yes. Yes, it's a whole new world. And so, um, honestly, I think it took me a long time to transition into trusting my own culture, like trusting Mm. that circle that that I could suddenly say, hey, we actually relate and get each other because I had so kind of put up a wall and a barrier that that I kind of didn't want to see myself as Chinese because I had nobody growing up, I just had nobody. And so um, meeting Chinese girlfriends and dating Chinese 
young men. Like that was like the first time ever in, in um, my junior and senior year of high school. So. Oh, totally. I can relate to that growing up in Boulder, Colorado. Yes. Similar, just a handful right. in these Chinese families that would have mahjong parties. Yes. You know, and, you know, do all of that. But it was very much um, mm-hmm. just void. So when I actually, my first assignment on staff, um, mm-hmm. the organization I work for was Berkeley. So mm-hmm. I literally remember driving across into California going, yeah. wow, there's an Asian and another one. Like it yes. just was, so I completely relate to what you're describing. So my question is like, as you think about um, your experience um, growing up as you have, like what are parts of your heritage that you are proud of mm-hmm. and what have been some things that have been kind of painful for you? Hmm. You know, this is um, one of those questions that we could probably be here for the next several hours. And I was um, thinking about this question earlier today as I was preparing to come and chat and just reckoning with the fact that in my heart, there's a lot of unresolved. There are lots of things that um, as I share them here, I would be honest and say, I don't know if I'm completely clear in my heart about what I'm proud about and what's hurtful and what things that I I, um, have in my adult life really dealt with because I think there's a lot that I've kind of pinned down and repressed and really even just ignored and said, you know what, I'm a fighter. I'm going to just set that aside. But as I look at it, I would say, you know, one of the hardest things about being an Asian American for me has been that um, I don't really, I feel like I'm between two worlds. I don't feel tied in and, and culturally connected to my parents and my grandparents, even if the respect is there and the, the, the communication is there. And even if they've come my direction, I've come their direction and there's a good place where we can all communicate, but there's a loss and everybody feels a certain amount of loss. Even if in the immigration process and in the coming to the United States and even in the developing of a new life, there's been so much blessing. There have been so many opportunities, so much blessing, so many things that could not have been a part of our family's story had we not come. There are people in our lives, opportunities, even resources that we would have not had otherwise. Even with all that blessing, there feels like a lot of loss and it's unspoken loss. It's the loss that my mom feels when her daughter really doesn't understand why she makes a big deal of some certain things. It's the loss of feeling like, oh, we came to this country, but we really never showed our kids anything about the, any of where we grew up. I've never been back to Taiwan. I don't have any mental image of what it was like when my mom was young, raising me when I was a baby. I have no idea what that was like. And um, so there's a loss there. There's a loss of the fact that um, both of my parents were from families um, in China. So they escaped communism in the 49 and my dad was born on a boat mm. between China and Taiwan. My mom was born in Taiwan. So technically our family, our family is not Taiwanese. It's they're Chinese immigrated to Taiwan. So in that process, we lost a lot of that history because things were not brought from China to Taiwan. Mm. And then again, from Taiwan to America, yeah. I, I, there's no antiques in my life. I don't have like mm. a, a jacket or a spoon or or any quilt that somebody made. You know, so when you know um, I spend time in the Midwest and you're going to antique fairs or you're going to Round Top in Texas and you're shopping your heart out and looking at heirlooms, family heirlooms, and mm-hmm. things that are beautiful that people are saying, oh, you know, 
you you fall in love with um, beautiful quilts that have been around for 40, 50 years. I don't own anything or have access to anything that would have been needlework by my grandmother or my grandma's mm. mom. And those are things that um, I think we underestimate because most, and, and this is not just stereotyping Asians as much as I'm saying we all are this way, but we have such a forward eye. We're like, we're building for the future. We're building for the future. But it's hard to know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. And it's hard to know how to walk forward in your new identity if you're still wrestling where you came from or mm-hmm. what has, like what you were born into. And so the reality is that's not found in stuff. It's not like, hey, if I had family heirlooms or um, beautiful handiwork by the women in my, ho- my household, it's not that if I had those things, everything would feel better, but there's something that I feel, and this is why I say it's not that it's not that I have like some loss where I'm just going to start crying right now, although I wouldn't put that put it past me to do so. But (laughs) it's that it's that there's a loss there that you can't put your finger on. And I don't know if there's any listener right now that can feel that that would say, hey, if I just get quiet and go to my room and I'm not on social media and I'm not talking to five million people and hanging out and going to my job and getting off work and and dealing with the hustle of life, if I just get quiet for a moment, there's a minute there where you kind of say, there's a big part of myself that's missing and I'm not sure where to go to like find it. Because yeah. I, I have a strained relationship with my mom, so I'm not sure how to talk to her about it. And once I open a can of worms, you feel like you're going all in and that's going to bring up a whole lot of family tragedy and drama and pain sure. that nobody wants to talk to. So let's not go there. Hmm. But then when you don't go there, you're a 43-year-old woman who's like, hmm, not only do I not have you know, a quilt or a, you know, a piece of furniture or anything, like even letters from people in my past, I kind of can't fill in the blanks about my own story. I yeah. can't tell you what every person in my immediate family went through because I've actually never really gathered around the table with multi, multi-generations mm. and really talked. The most yeah. I've been around multiple generations in my family have been that once every five-year birthday party, right? Mm-hmm. Where you go rent out an entire restaurant, all the Asian women raise their hand and say, amen. And you have the 12-course <laughs> meal where you're like, wow, we have shark fin soup and yes. lobster. And we're all going to talk. But here, the talking, and I'm using quotes here, but the talking is really a, re- a reporting of everything that you've accomplished in the last 10 mm-hmm. years of your life to make sure that everybody knows I've done my job. I'm, I'm, you can be proud of your family. And when you walk away, you're like, okay, I, I've got your CV. I've got your resume. I know what's going on, mm. but you may not know each other's hearts. And even if I've been to a few of those birthday parties, celebrations, big, huge rent out the restaurant events, I still walk away going, who am I? Mm. And so I just, I just share that to say, it's a complicated question. It's not necessarily a matter of what I'm proud of or what I'm hurt by. It's more just that it feels like a little bit of a black hole that I don't know how to, um, I don't know how to go into. I don't know how to go and search for the missing pieces that I need. And so some of that's me. Some of that's me not being willing to talk about it or, you know, calling up my mom and saying, let's go there and have a big old conversation. And some of it's that there just really hasn't been a lot of information because families were torn apart, right? Families were torn apart in 49. People, um, lost their lives, lost their businesses, lost their families 
went through severe pain and tragedy. And as fighters, they went and worked their butts off to create a new life and nobody's looking back. But the disservice that we do to the future generation is we do not know how to give what we don't have. And so if you don't have a strong sense of who you are, you don't really know how to give a new identity and pass it on to your children and those who come after you. Totally. <clears throat> Which is really a lot of the heart and desire for even this this mm-hmm. space, this mm-hmm. podcast is helping encourage one another to continue to do the the hard work of the and discovery. Not to, yes. And not to, to give, give up. up. Yep. Not to give up. And I think to to feel validated right even in right. the experience because i think that that is such a common experience and and that asian is so broad so we have right. some of our asian friends who you know are fifth generation chinese right. you know great great grandparents built the railroads mm-hmm. um, right. and we also have newly immigrated and right. everything in between and um so i love that you know that I, I think what it demonstrates for me is that we all are on a journey and mm-hmm. there are pieces that we are putting to place. But when we do kind of lock in some of that identity, mm-hmm. I think that that does kind of give us a, a different type of confidence, mm-hmm. not a prideful one, but just kind right. of knowing, kind of a knowing. Right. That's right. Um, part of, you know, I think for me, you know, that I'm thankful that my parents speak English Mm-hmm. So that my kids can communicate mm-hmm. with them, but for a lot of my Asian friends, the the parents and the grandparents certainly don't speak English. So the mm-hmm. the loss of language, mm-hmm. not being able to have my mm-hmm. my kids understand, you know, the grandparents right. is a right. whole other layer of that. So right. definitely. Well, I have a question. Like, what is your favorite Asian comfort food? Oh man, you know, I wish I could make and cook a lot more than I do. But one of the things that I had to learn to make was beef and carrots um, and noodles, you know, and just like a traditional um, Chinese noodle soup. And so I do make that home with the um, star anise and, you know, the I use cloves as well. And so it's kind of a cross between a pho and a, and a Taiwanese beef soup. And I do love that. I don't know how I turned into that um, stereotypical Chinese person who is like stressed out and has to slurp noodles. I mean, I like the way I deal with life. Like I feel so stressed. Well, well, actually, I when I'm stressed, I do eat chips and salsa too. But um, (laughs) I I really, really do love my noodles, and um, and you know, it's a it's a major comfort to make jiaozi and to Mm -hmm. to sit around the table. And I would say, you know, when I think about what brings me a lot of joy and pride is when um, my children love the the culture of gathering and sharing the experience of food. So they will invite people over and say, you've got to do hot pot with our family. Mm, yes, hoko, yes. together. <clears throat> to, um, recently we had friends from our new community here that after we moved, come over and make jiaozi together. We didn't, mm-hmm. we didn't um, roll out our own skins, but we bought um, store-bought um, wrappers and made our own dumplings and pan fried them and steamed them and, and then we had Coco afterwards. And it's oh, just, awesome. it is a joy to me that they recognize that, whereas um, that's one part of Asian culture that I feel so grateful that I know, I understand that there's an idea of lingering at the table, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a, hey, eating is about just, you know, getting something down and then going off and doing the next thing. But really like, 
this is today's event. Today's event is we're going to stand around the island for a really long time chopping vegetables. <laughs> and I will say for all the ways in which, even in my own upbringing and, and maybe in a lot of Asian families, sometimes, and this is not a stereotype, just that culturally, I think sometimes this happens where sometimes communication may be difficult. Sometimes Asian families are not known for um, little girls being invited to sit on their dad's laps and talk and joke and tickle. And um, I didn't grow up with that. Didn't mean that my dad didn't love me, but he wasn't expressive that way. And so I would look at my friends who got to like cuddle with their dads and laugh and joke around and their dads were sarcastic and funny and took them dress shopping. That wasn't my experience, but my dad fixed the toilet, scrubbed the dishes, chopped vegetables with me. And if I was cooking with him, we could sit for a really long time around the counter. And you know, as you're standing there doing something like preparing a meal for hours, which is so Asian to do that, mm-hmm. as you're doing that, conversations arise. And so I think part of the hope here is to remember we don't all have the same opportunity, like same personality and opportunities, but culturally, I think it's neat that as a culturally, Asian culture has so much embedded in the food culture that we should make the most of that and recognize that sometimes when, when we're lacking that intimacy that we want with a fellow Asian American or a fellow Asian or our parents' generation, when we're feeling like we're missing something there, to look to what has been given, right? What's been given is a, a culture and a generation of parents who are always willing to make supper, who are always willing to gather a bunch of people together and fill a house so that everybody's eating and eating well. And so take what we've been given, even if we've not been given that super affectionate, talkative parent and say, okay, let's, let's use what we've been given and try to bridge that gap with what we've been given. So. Yeah, that's so true. And it is interesting because I think that because Asian is so collective rather than individualistic, it it comes out in the way that we eat, like family style. (laughs) Right. Like everyone's like eating off the same things. And so I was just thinking back to one of my dear friends and we celebrated her birthday Mm -hmm. at an Italian restaurant, Mm -hmm. but all of us wanted to try everything. So we ordered like six different Italian dishes, but we asked for extra plates so that we could all (laughs) eat everyone's different, you know, this one's ravioli. So it's an Italian, we're eating it Asian style, family style, which, you know, everyone gets a little bit of everything and you're dividing all the food up and making sure it's, everyone has enough. Mm -hmm. And um, it really is, it's a very, uh, yeah, fascinating uh, dynamic, but I think there's so much that is expressed through the food and that, that, greater gathering and, and sharing it together and cor- like a corporate enjoyment, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like in some way that, you know, emotional energy that we long to have relationally in some Asian cultures, I think it actually is expressed by generously saying, here's the last of this. Why don't you have it? I want you to enjoy more of it. And some of that obviously is contrived, but I think some of it is really an opportunity to express what may be difficult to express otherwise for certain people within that culture. And so I do know that, for example, my grandma may not look me in the eye and speak really tenderly towards me, but when she was younger, she would absolutely give me the best of what she could make for me for dinner. And that was one way she could express that I was important to her. 
That's right. That's right. It's really true. So growing up in New Mexico, mm-hmm. um, if you were willing, uh, would you share maybe some of the things that you heard from others that yeah. tended to be kind of more painful for you? Um, yeah. Just kind of navigating um, living in two worlds and all of right. that. I always wonder what it would have been like to have been born into a big city full of Chinese people um, or, well, I mean, I was born into Taiwan, but I just mean, you know, growing up. So technically I was, but, you know, um, as I came into relationships and language and growing up, um, I was in a predominantly Hispanic and Caucasian um, community and our, our family was actually really poor. And I just remember as a new immigrant family, my parents were barely, barely speaking English. They were not um, able to pursue some of the things that they had thought they were going to pursue when they came over to the United States. And so they were working hard. They were continuing their education and working on things. But um, I was, I remember my parents spent the money for me to take piano lessons. And my piano teacher taught me how to sew dresses for my Barbie dolls, which weren't even real Barbies. They were, you know, little cheaper versions. But for lunch, I didn't have bologna and American cheese sandwiches on rainbow bread. We took fried rice in a washed out Dan and yogurt container. Do you remember back when they had containers that actually had the lids? And I'll just never forget. I'll never forget. It was like first grade. And, um, you know, by that point, I was speaking English. Kids are so resilient. It's amazing. I was speaking English. I think I was even wearing lavender jeans with stirrups by then. So I was cool and, you know, watched gym and knew my 80s stuff and probably had a My Little Pony. But here I am at the lunchroom and I will never forget. Um, this is just a story that is anchored in my mind while everybody pulls out their little strawberry shortcake lunchbox and every single person had a rainbow white bread bologna sandwich. I mean, I mean, I kind of gag thinking about a bologna and cheese, American cheese sandwich right now. And I'd take fried rice any day. But at the time, I opened my little Dan and yogurt container and it said blueberry yogurt on the outside. I opened it up and it was last night's fried rice and the entire lunchroom stopped. And everybody went... They, everybody stood up to come over and look at it. And they just, wow. the entire room went, ooh, what does that smell? Now, I know it's, it's kids, right? It's kids. But it's amazing how much that, that seriously stuck with me. It was just this, mm-hmm. I actually hid from there on out. Like I, I always felt nervous about Asian scents, right? Asian yes. food yes. smells. Mm-hmm. Even if, I think it's delicious. I hid. I wanted to hide it and I wanted to apologize for it. If my, you know, I remember um, like legitimately when my mom packed me a beef tongue sandwich. Yeah, legitimately I, I hid that one because that's a little weird. But, you know, I, I just remember thinking my parents did the very best they knew how. But for, for I think it was interesting how um, that was such a strong memory for me just to remember that um, what I what I felt was totally normal and what I felt was delicious and what I thought was very culturally just what my family ate every single day was suddenly like absolutely the root of all the jokes and all the mm-hmm. oh, disgustingness. And really, um, you know, I, I think of so many... Asian Americans can relate to this story. Anyone um, who's 
still speaks the language and their language around non-Asian friends. Um, as a child, I had I was the butt of every joke that had to do with um, making fun of what I sound like when I speak or or a typical, right? Even, and funny, Viv, just that I feel like things were like, were said like this, even as an adult. So we're not talking about just when I was, you know, six, mm-hmm. but in just in casual passive conversations when people say, and, and so it's strange to be like, wow, I actually feel like I remember an occasion like this in my forties, as well as when I was six, when somebody just at a, you know, party or whatever, will randomly say things like, well, that sounds like Chinese, ching, chong, ching, 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 you know, and um, doing some version of that or, or they hear something and it's unintelligible and they turn to you and say, what is, well, translate that. Isn't that Chinese or something? And it could be like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Right, you know, it could be sure, something totally sure. strange, but because it's, as long as it's strange and odd, everybody turns towards me and says, mm. can you translate that? You speak that, right? Or, oh, there's a new Vietnamese girl in town. You must speak her language because everybody's the same. If you're Asian, you're all the same, right? right. Um, and I, I, I have to say, you know, that was a lot of my upbringing. But then, um, and I think I can share the story. Um, when I was, when I was married, um, my husband's late grandpa, who, you know, that generation, they, they probably were the most politically incorrect generation sure. or whatever, you know, and I know he loved me, but as he was ill and um, in the hospital, I went to visit him one time and we were standing around and, you know, we kind of joke about this as a family, but I just want to share to validate and to, for your listeners to know that like, a woman in her 40s learning to deal with all this is still hearing things like this. But he says, he's, I find out later, he says to our family, um, somebody else, maybe my father-in-law, I don't know, but he said, um, that Ruth, she's so pretty. She doesn't even look Chinese. Oh, wow. And um, we all laughed about it and I laughed. But now I look back and I go, I'm not sure why I laughed. Because yeah. it really stings to hear that. Yeah. Um, tender about it, not because I was faking. I, I knew I knew that he was speaking from his um from his own negligence and, and not being sensitive and not thinking through what he was saying. Mm-hmm. But I'm just sharing that here, not because I'm trying to point a finger or make somebody look bad. Um because it wasn't that in his heart, he was trying to, he was for sure trying to pay me a compliment, you know, right, but, right. but I think just as an adult hearing that, I recognize how much for my entire life I've struggled with thinking that I could ever be beautiful because prettiness was always associated with not looking Chinese. Yeah. Like that was the bottom line. As a, when you asked me what, what, what were things said to me maybe as a child, it was always, oh my goodness, people literally said, your face is like a clock. It's like perfectly round and flat. Like I, I literally do not know how those kinds of things could be said. But, but even when I was an adult, um, I had somebody close to me say, those glasses don't look super great on you because they're kind of flat and your nose is already really flat. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I'm just giving you the parallel that you think it's ludicrous when little children say it. But honestly, adults, you know, just kind of stay within that realm of like, hey, you know what? 
I just describing something, not realizing how much our um, our words sometimes reveal our deepest, most unexposed prejudices and our unexposed um, um, <laughs> just our biases, right? And so the bias there was that Ruth is so pretty; she doesn't even look Chinese. Mm-hmm. Well, that hurt. And I, and I didn't acknowledge it for a really long time because in my mind, I was like, ha ha, that's just the funniest thing grandpa would say. Mm-hmm. I'm being the only Asian in this family because I married a Caucasian who mm-hmm. has a Caucasian family, obviously. And um, yeah, I, I felt very singled out. I felt very unseen, right? Yeah. Not seen yeah. as beautiful because I'm Chinese. Right. And so um, I, I won't lie and say... I. I can't say that I've completely understood how to embrace my individuality or embrace my features. I think it was just like last week that I was finally discovering some YouTube videos on how to do makeup for Asian features. I mean, I'm a grown woman finally going, wait, there's YouTube videos for me? Right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> right? yes. Because yes. most of my life, all the makeup books that I would buy or any anything that you would get at a makeup counter had features that don't look like me. So you can practice all you want on a sheet of paper mm-hmm. that's like, hey, pretend and practice on the sheet of paper or practice on your own face and you'll look ridiculous. Totally. It wasn't until recently that I was like, oh, wait, I can wear these different things. I just have to know how to do it. And mm-hmm. it's not that I'm trying to cause myself to look non-Asian. I'm just making the most out of my own features. So right. growing up, I think so much of it was, how do I cause myself to look the least Asian possible? And right. that is a very oppressive thing to live under Yeah, growing up, right? To try to be not, to try to not look like yourself. Totally. No, I can completely relate. I think I realized for me, just so much of what drives me is wanting to fit in because mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I fit in. So usually, even in conflict with my husband, if I take it down to the very, very core, mm-hmm. at the at the bottom of it is this desire to, um, it's the desire to fit in. You know, and that's what's driving this need to do this thing or have this thing or look this because I want to fit in to majority culture. And um, that, in my experience, is white culture, you know, so that that's so centralized that the Disney princesses are all right, look a certain way with these features like you're talking about. And, you know, I remember, you know, being a teenager and, you know, trying to explore makeup as you're talking about and not finding anyone who looked like me for, you know, eye makeup, you know, mm-hmm. or even skin tone colors, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, I could not, I could not match my skin color for no. and a long, long time. Right, yes. right. And all the, I think all the examples of Asian beauty either had to be exotic and sex, sexual mm-hmm. or had to be Asians who, almost didn't look Asian because their skin was so white or their hair was so so big. Yeah. Their eyes were, you know, their hair was so bleached or their eyes were so big or they had been, you know, under some version of surgeries to cause their eyelids to not be monolids. And, and, And those were all the examples that I saw. And so really there was no way I, I was, I had such a hard time embracing the idea of being a quote, average, normal Asian American who's not overly provocative or overly, mm-hmm. this or, you know, just to 
how do how do I be the girl next door Asian style? <laughs> you know, sure, and totally. There just yeah. aren't a lot of examples yeah. of that. So. Yeah, and I think that that's really so much of um, you know our landscape is changing, um, demographics are changing, and yet in so many arenas you know, hashtag representation matters, mm-hmm. you know, for kids to not grow up seeing people on TV that look like them or storylines that reflect their experiences. Just this past weekend, I watched Always Be My Maybe, the mm-hmm. Ali Wong and Randall Park rom-com. But, okay. you know, they're, they're in San Francisco. The first shot is her coming home, latchkey kid, taking her shoes off and hearing mom and dad have to work late. So she's cooking her own food and she has rice and futakake and some spam, you know, and just um, that experience just in those few moments of just normalizing that this is yes a real experience um, was so, uh, it just kind of, I exhaled actually. Yes. Um, and in the same way that I think African-Americans do not want to only see the, their their people portrayed in um, inner city only or right. only in, as rappers or only mm-hmm. in the same way yeah. I personally cannot handle when everyone thinks that all Asians are neurosurgeons or right. all Asians <laughs> love math or all of us play our concert violinist. <laughs> it's not always that way. Right. And right. so, um, you know, I think because for so long, the only portrayal was that Asians are nerdy or Asians are mm-hmm. intense or Asians are the ones that go and get into Stanford, but aren't the ones that are taken to prom. Right. Um, I didn't have a good perspective of that so much so that if we're just going to be vulnerable, because I've already probably gotten more vulnerable here. I've never cried on a podcast, but um, <laughs> I've gotten more vulnerable here than I have elsewhere. I'll just be honest and say there was initially in my first couple of years of marriage, being married to my Caucasian husband, I thought I was the lucky one and that he, and I, I didn't say it like this, but it somehow in my heart, I thought he settled for not marrying a blonde or a brunette or some bombshell, that he somehow settled marrying me. And I thought I was the lucky one. And I'm just being really honest to verbalize that here because what are we going to do here if we're not going to be honest, right? And so I just want to verbalize that and say that, um, I have a long ways to go myself, but I'm so grateful to be a work in progress and to to know that that's no longer where I stand. But you know, 21 years in, I don't feel that way anymore. But right. but that just shows you how much my brain had been trained to think that being Chinese was subpar, was not as pretty, not as special, because you know. I hate to say it, but big booties are not Asian women, you know, like Asian women don't have big booties and are usually (laughs) very busty, not super curvy. And so when you're, so in my mind, I'm like, well, he's grown up with all these girls who are, who've got lovely hips and I have none, you know, I have no hips, (laughs) you know, so in my mind, I'm thinking thinking somehow that he has, yeah. um, Had to settle. He had to settle. And that is a terrible place to, that's not a way to start a marriage. That's not a way to go all in. Um, in a marriage, you, you're you marrying the whole person, not a person who thinks they're half of who they are. So, yeah. um, oh, I appreciate you being willing to share that. So thank you for being vulnerable yeah. in that way. So I appreciate that. Well, I would love to um, 
switch gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear um, just a leadership, like a some suggestion or leadership tip or um, something along the lines of the work that you do, because yeah. you are remarkable. And I can't wait to to share and intro this podcast to, you know, brag on all of your outstanding achievements, but you are running, you know, your company and the, the people that uh, report to you that you are, you have hired. So share any leadership tips that you would our listeners to hear. So I do think that it is a privilege that I get to lead a team of women. I have five women that I work with on our small but mighty team that runs Grace Laced. And one of the things that I've learned being the CEO, the head, the one who has to like impart vision and um, lead the charge is that even if in my upbringing and in my cultural perspective and my paradigm for a long time, I thought there's nothing to show until I'm ready to show something perfect. So sometimes mm-hmm. I come from a perspective of um, just keep to yourself, get your, keep your head down and keep working hard. And unless it's perfect, unless you have a product to show, progress isn't that thing that you really talk about or show because it's so performance-based. Like mm-hmm. um, not every Asian American is going to be brought up in that, but I think a lot of Asians are. A lot of Asians experience the performance tendency, that the the expectation that you should be able to show the A plus. You should be able to show the number one. And so my paradigm growing up has been a lot of, um, I'm going to put something on a pedestal and show you that I've earned your favor and I've earned your respect. And there are times when I have to fight that as a leader. I have to fight that where I welcome imperfection. I welcome progress. I welcome a progress report when it's not done. And I think it's so important as a leader to to purposefully say, I'm not looking for perfect. I'm looking for attitude, a good attitude. I'm looking for all in. I'm looking for us working together, collaborating, right? I'm not instilling in you a sense of, oh, I better be totally quiet until I have a perfect thing to show her that Hmm. it's all done and I'm great and I make no mistakes. So that's just something that I see that can translate from my cultural paradigm from growing up to how I'm a leader. Because sometimes as a leader, all those like tiger mom moments come out where I'm like, let's have deliverables. And, you know, where are our goals? What's the checklist? And what do you mean you didn't get that done in the two hours that you had to do that. (laughs) I don't verbally say that. I can be hard on my team the way I'm hard on myself. Mm -hmm. And so I think as an Asian American woman and a woman leader, I think it's really helpful to sometimes take an inventory of what drives your hustle. And if that hustle is driven by fear or a need to perform, or thinking that you won't have somebody's respect unless you perform or outperform everybody, mm-hmm. then you might want to be careful that you're not in par- Just that will be the flavor in which you lead others. Mm-hmm. And so, what you want your organization to be about at the end of the day will trickle mm-hmm. down from what drives you. And so, mm-hmm. if you want to have a healthy organization, that's not in a cycle of performance and fear and guilt 
and shame and, oh, now I'm out of that cycle because I did awesome. If you don't want an organization that goes around and around in those shame and performance cycles, then you need to not be in that yourself. That helps you lead out of um, freedom and in a, in a collaborative space that says we are all works in progress and we're better because we're working together. Mm, I really love that. I love that because it really, when you're describing this to me, it's kind of bringing together of both cultures because you, because it's not saying, Oh, like just lower the standards and it just doesn't matter. There's still that desire to do well and to, to be about excellence, but not for the sake of, acceptance or, you know, that the driven part of what you're talking about where it's unhealthy. It's not a problem to be driven. Absolutely. I love that I'm driven, but I think the drive, I always have to kind of go all the way back to the origin of that drive and say, what's my why? And if the why is that I cannot feel good about who I am unless I achieve something, then I'm playing into these lies and cultural norms that I don't need to subscribe to. That's so good. I really appreciate that, Ruth. Well, Ruth, I have loved this conversation with you and I look forward to the continuation of it. Ruth and I are going to be in Rwanda in a matter of weeks. Uh, So this is so exciting to, um, to kind of, you know, the beginning and the continuation Mm -hmm. of so much of our journey. Um, so thank I'm so you. honored to be oh here. Thank you for having me. It was, it was so special to be able to chat about these things. And um, you're an encouragement to me, Vivian. Oh, well, love you. And thanks for being on. And oh, and really quick, how can people find you? Yes. Um, my website is ruthjoesimons.com and gracelaced.com is the business site. That is beautiful. Well, Ruth, I will, um, I'm so excited for people to see your incredible work. Um, definitely would love to have you on again so you can talk about your new book and all of that stuff. But as the very first guest of Someday Is Now, thank you so much for being willing. And um, I'm sitting here in my really you know, sexy closet <laughs> and I just love that, um, that, you know what, it's that process that you were talking about that, you know, we can move into some uncharted territories and it's just better together. And yes, absolutely. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week on Some Days Now. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment and subscribe to the show so each new episode automatically downloads to your device every week. And thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. We would love for you to leave a review so others can find out about the show. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Someday is Now possible. The Someday is Now logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joshua Patrick with PassionNet Productions. The show notes on the website are done by Vicki Fan. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The director of design and website designer is Kenny Wong. And the executive producer is Chantel Reynolds. Have a great week, and we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is Now. <laughs>